This episode is brought to you by Canela Bistro and Wine Bar, serving Spanish plates and over 70 wines from Spain in the heart of San Francisco. Visit us socially at Canela SF and canelasf.com. You're listening to Food, Wine, and the Culinary Mind with Matt Schuster. We're getting inside the brilliant and delicious minds of remarkable culinary individuals. We're telling stories, cutting up, and breaking it down. Welcome, everybody. I'm here again with friend, chef, and proprietor of Lanyette Peak Vineyards, Erica Almeida Mooney. Hey, guys. Welcome again, Erica. And if you want to shout at Erica on Instagram, it's at Mooney Erica. That's yeah, me. That's you. So Sarah Moulton. Uh, she is, she's one of these women that is just iconic. Like, I feel like she made up her own industry and just started it. I remember being an intern in the early 90s at the Food Network and there were like three shows on the Food Network, but her show was live mm. every mm-hmm. night. Mm-hmm. And so you had to be packed up and out of the kitchen by three o'clock because her crew came in and she would go on at six. And she would come in and like they were like prepping everything, but it was all live. I still don't understand how that happened. It's hard. Live is hard. Oh my golly. She. Oh my golly. Oh my golly. Like we very well will take like four things out of this recording that we're doing right now. And I think, oh my golly, it's going to be one of them. No, that's going to stay for sure. (laughs) But, But, But live is tough. She would literally be there breaking down a chicken on camera, like a raw chicken on camera, holding a phone up. I feel like holding a phone up on her shoulder because people would call in and be like, I'm baking a cake. How do I make sure my flour is level? And she will continue breaking down the chicken while explaining how to level out flour and the difference between liquid measuring cup and a solid measuring cup. I mean, just craziness, craziness. So you can tell she's super calm. So, So I took the red eye to New York. I got off the plane at eight in the morning and she was on her way out to Boston and had a very tight schedule. The only time she could do it was at 10 a.m. that morning. So I was, you know, super nervous that I was going to, something was going to happen. The plane was going to be late. I was going to get stuck in traffic, whatever. So I end up, you know, I had arranged a conference room to do the recording. I get there and it was one of those things where the picture that they sent you to the conference room was not the actual conference room. Yeah. And and it was, it was like, I was like, there's no way I'm dragging... Sarah Moulton into this nasty conference room. So I had to scramble. I called the Airbnb guy, asked if I could check in early. Luckily it was close. So I met her down in the lobby and I said, Hey, this isn't going to work. You know, can we do this at my Airbnb? Which already could have been weird. Uh, Yeah. But she was, she was like, no problem. So we go over to the Airbnb. I set up at the dining room table. Literally we got two minutes in and they started doing construction outside. And she didn't, I, I bet you anything, she didn't even Well, she, she looks at me and she, you know, we both knew that we couldn't keep recording because right. it was really loud. And so we hauled up in the bedroom of the Airbnb. And again, I'm like getting my mortified feeling coming back. And I was like, Sarah, you know, we're going to, I was like, would you be okay doing this in the bedroom? And she's like, I'll grab the chairs. I know. I know, but she's like, I'll grab the chairs. She was, she was lovely. Do not try this at home, you kids. Know, well, and, 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 <laughs> Do not try to lure famous chefs oh my God. into Airbnb I bedrooms. I know, you know, and, 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 you know, I'm, I'm like worried the whole time that she's going to think I'm like some kind of Dumbo. And she was just lovely. And I think maybe that's a career of number one, you know, being a career chef mm-hmm. and also somebody who does live things on a daily basis. She it understands. Is, yeah, she Things gets it. go awry. Yeah, you got to roll with it. Uh-huh. She was the food editor on Good Morning America for a while, and that led into some stories about, you know, things that happen I bet that on is live TV, you know? an interesting job, because just as she had people sort of prepping and creating her recipes so she could go on air and... I would imagine that's kind of role reversal, right? So like all of a sudden she's taking whatever celebrity chef's recipe is coming in to do a segment 
and right. showing it on air. So, and yeah, she's getting certain, she's getting getting all kinds of chefs ready, and there are all kinds of chefs, all kinds of people. Oh, there are all kinds of people, and yeah. all kinds of people want their onions chopped mm-hmm. all the kinds of way, mm-hmm. and literally for a camera to pan on them for two seconds. Right. And it's right. like, you know what, honey? Like it's an yeah. onion. You're it's, not you're not even really cooking it. And some people, some people, <laughs> it's already done, and it's perfect. And you know, some people are more nervous than other people, mm-hmm. right? But I think at least you know, you and I are the same age, and we remember her for those live question answers. Mm-hmm. On, on, I think, the early days of Food Network, right? Oh, and, and how brave taking those phone calls in New York City in the early 90s where the crazies were still out <laughs> and about. <laughs> well, but, it was, but the calls were coming from all over the country, not just inside that. Were they really? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, they were coming from all over the country. She talks about the calls that she would field from the South and from other parts of the country. And, and so you have to know... Regional cooking as well. I mean, you have oh to know everything. Oh my God, that, yeah. that is, this is the definition of fake it. Or I mean, this is the kind of thing that I would just literally, see, this is why I could never do this because I would just make up things. One of the biggest things I ever got in trouble for was I was working at a restaurant and we were cooking ramps. Mm. And one of the cooks was in the kitchen and was like, why do you think they call them ramps? And I just absolutely like didn't even falter. And I was like, oh, because they grow on an incline. <laughs> and he was like, okay. Cut to like two weeks later, like a interviewer from the New York Times comes oh, in no. and is talking to all of the people in the kitchen because oh, it was like one of those no. kinds of interviews, like what happens behind the scenes. And they say to this guy, to this oh, cook no. who's sauteing all the ramps, oh, what are ramps? And he's like, oh, they're like spring garlic and they're called ramps because they're grown on an no. incline. Erica, <laughs> no. It's still the biggest joke ever. I got in a lot of trouble. <laughs> But it's also why I love you. Thanks. Don't do that to me. <laughs> so now Sarah is kicking off her, I want to say an eighth season on PBS's Sarah's Weeknight Meals. She was a protege of Julia Childs. She was the executive chef at Gourmet Magazine, and we talk about that in the interview. She is the author of many cookbooks, including her latest Sarah Moulton's Home Cooking 101. She appears weekly on Chris Kimball's Milk Street Radio. She's also the author of the Associated Press column Kitchen Wise and the monthly Washington Post column Sunday Suppers. I feel like she has made an entire career and at least written 20 cookbooks on dinner. Well, and and she's a teacher. She wants Mm -hmm. to teach people how to confidently cook at home so they can enjoy being Mm -hmm. with their family. And she still, she travels all over still and does interactive cooking classes. Like I saw she was doing one in in Austin or something Mm. at like, you know, a beautiful, I mean, not a bad job. Mm. Matt and I who met running a cooking school, Mm -hmm. like if we could have done that in the hill country of Austin would have been a little nicer than the bowels of a grocery store. But you know, same thing. All right, so are you ready to listen to Sarah Moulton's interview? I'm so ready. I hope she tells me what to make for dinner. Could you just text her, Sarah, what should I make for dinner? It'd be so much easier than calling my husband. I'll do that. I'm on that right now. Let's, all right, uh, let's all find out. Sarah, what's for dinner? Siri, call Sarah. <laughs> Alexa. Yeah. No. Chicken. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here with Sarah Moulton. Thank you for joining me. Oh, I'm so thrilled to meet with you. I appreciate that you just were so wholeheartedly just said yes to doing this. This is great. So thank you. Well, I I think it's cool what you're doing. And the other people you mentioned you already interviewed, they're all my buddies. So I'm like, well, he's got good taste. I'd like to be in that company. (laughs) My plan worked. So good. Good, good, good. So I've heard you say before that one of your first jobs was in a diner. And before we were talking, I asked you to tell me a couple of things that you learned about working in an all-night diner. And you said that there are a lot of lonely people out there. So tell me about that. Well, I worked the graveyard shift on Friday and Saturday nights. And, uh, and this is in? Ann Arbor, Michigan. Okay. And who's the clientele? Well, quite a motley crew. I wouldn't say single women, mostly 
couples, older men, and we had a lot of younger couples coming out of the bars because uh-huh. the bars would close, you know, like not like in New York City, the bars would close like at one or two or something, and then everybody have to go get something to eat. Yeah, drunk and hungry. Right. It was a real motley crew, and some of them you could tell just had nowhere else to go and were lonely. Did you have conversations, offer advice? Was it like a, bar- Abs- a bartender kind of? Absolutely. I was their shrink. I mean, <laughs> I loved, you know, being there for them and hearing their stories. I mean, if they got crazy, you know, then you'd yeah, sort of... There's a limit. Yeah. You'd sort of walk away or get the manager to handle it. Right. But no, I was happy to be there for them. Was there a common dish that they would all gather around? Jeez, it was so long ago, I cannot remember. It was like a burger pancake kind of... Yeah, burger yeah. pancake, but it was a Greek diner. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, you know, like many diners. So it could be a feta cheese omelet. Mm-hmm. It could be moussaka. They had Greek specialties, and they were Greek. Was the food good? It was pretty good. Yeah. And that's where I also tried to worm my way into the kitchen. This is before I even knew that this is what I wanted to do, but that seemed like a heck of a lot more fun than being a waitress. But they would not let me because that is not what women did. So it was an all-male crew? Yeah. At that time? Except for the waitresses, yeah, of course. Except for the waitresses. Who were terrific. We yeah. had a lot of fun together. And this was like right on a pad, tear the order. Oh, God, put yes. It in the, yes, yes. Yeah. There was no electronic right, anything. Right, And the woman, it was, it was owned by Tom and Gina Stamandianos. Uh-huh. And she was a real taskmaster to the point where, you know, we had these huge jars of mayonnaise and ketchup. Uh-huh. And we had to refill the little canisters on the table. And we had to use a rubber scraper to get every oh, last yeah. drop oh, yeah. of mayonnaise. I mean, which is smart. Why yeah. waste food? Yeah. But she was a real taskmaster. But she taught us a lot. She taught me really how to do 500 things at once. And also how to write shorthand. So uh-huh. to this day, when I'm writing myself a note and I'm saying, going to meet so-and-so at, I do the at sign. Uh-huh. I don't uh-huh. write at or with. It's, it's W backslash or right. forward slash, forward, whatever it is. You know, something or other with something or other. I wouldn't write with anymore. Why would you do that? That's way too much letters. Numbers. So it's it's funny because we use at the restaurant, we use iPad point of sale. And, you know, it goes down from time to time because it's in the cloud and the cloud goes down. And the last time it went down, you know, we had to do for a minute, you know, the servers had to do paper tickets. Paper, oh dear. And it was... Chaos. Absolutely. Yeah. You know? Well, you know, it's one could equate it to those pilots who don't know how to fly a plane. They just rely right. on right. the... On the computer. Yeah. And one would be hope that they would, you know, learn actually how to fly the plane right. as well. Right, right. Although that's a little bit more dire. Right. So it is amazing, though, how your brain does forget those things, you know? I mean, and and that's what I was saying, you know, when the computers went down, I said, guys, there was a time when... That's all we did. Yeah, there was no computer. But probably your staff is way too young to have ever known that. They are. They don't know anything. Just like I'm way too old to learn the electronic system Uh, if I had to go back and be a wait person. But if you can punch on a phone, you can punch on these things. I I punch on a phone with one finger. So we also talked about a time that you failed and what you learned and you had a really great Failure. I don't know if I had what I learned. It's sort of, duh. So here's my failure. It's 1981 or 82. Uh And I'm working at a three-star restaurant in New York City. I say three-star by the New York Times standards. Uh I was not the chef. I was the chef tournant. Uh Now, you know what that means. Not everybody else does. It means I was the substitute cook. So everybody got a second day off because I did their job. Uh, and it. so okay. one day I'd wash lettuce. The next day I did appetizers. Well, that means you had to do everything. You knew how to do, had to know how to it do everything. It was a fantastic yeah, job for that awesome. reason. And one of my jobs also was to do desserts. And, uh-huh. I, you know, I, I feel like you're either a cooker or a baker. Uh-huh. And that forced me to learn a lot more about pastry. Right. And the woman who owned the restaurant was a fantastic pastry chef. She wasn't trained. She was a chef because finally she owned a restaurant, but she wasn't trained. But I learned a lot about pastry and about food from her. She was the best teacher. But at any rate, Sunday nights, I was the chef de cuisine. Uh-huh. And James Beard was a good friend of the owner of the restaurant, Sally Dar. And he came in several times a year. And we would all sort of, you know, get in line and fuss over him, although he was a relaxed guy. And that night, he ordered rack of lamb, among other things. I don't mm-hmm. remember what else he ordered. Mm-hmm. I threw three different racks of lamb on the broiler at different times, hoping that one of them would be right. 
And I was That's so... That's pretty smart, though. You, I mean, you're hedging your bets. At least then. But I still managed to overcook all three of them. And so oh, when no. it was time to send it out, Sally, who was a perfectionist, I right. really... I learned perfection from Julia Child and also from Sally Dar. said, no, there's no way we're sending that out. Let's send him out another course, and you put another rack of lamb on. Oh, so it didn't even make it to the table. Nope. But you were probably sweating. I was at the, th- at, the, at the thought of and it. And he must have yeah. known that something went wrong. Yeah. Where's my lamb? And I was like, "That's it. I'm a failure." Yeah. You know, and I hadn't had those kind of problems on prior Sundays. Yeah. Although I have to say, because I only did it once a week, I was nowhere near as good as the actual resident chef to cuisine, because that was a job where it really mattered. That particular job. Yeah. So that was horrifying. There's a real talent in being focused at the time when you need to. Right. You know? Right. Versus, you know, wasting time. Freaking out. Freaking out. Freaking yeah, what out. am I going to do? What am no, I going to do? No, no, you no. Know? It's not helpful. No. Especially not in restaurants. So those are really important things to learn. So tell me a couple of soapbox career advice. Well, this one actually comes from my mom, and it's sort of in the line of whatever Wayne Gretzky said about you only hit as many balls as you it uh-huh. couldn't have been way risky. <laughs> whatever as, as you attempt you know you, you're not going to hit it unless you try and so what she said was go on every date go on every interview and what she and meant that. by that, that was just do everything at once yeah. and it's really really true you can't sort of do apply, one and then, and then wait. wait and see yeah. what happens because you'll be waiting forever right so for example i just talked to this woman we connected via linkedin and she wanted she just finished a nutrition degree and she said she felt like a lot of books had misinformation about the nutritional content and she wanted to go work for a publisher doing that kind of copy you know be a copy editor but uh-huh. also catch some of the nutrition mistakes and she wanted my advice about how to go about that. So I said, well, go to a bookstore, go online, you know, figure out all the publishers who publish a lot of cookbooks, including current ones, and then write a cover letter explaining why you think you should go work for them. And then get back to me. Maybe I'll know some of these publishers and I might be able to hook you up with an editor who can advise you. And so 10 minutes later, I get an email back from her with like eight publishers. And I wrote her back and I said, you didn't cast a wide net. I don't see, for example, Workman on here. And that's Mm -hmm, a very mm -hmm. important publisher for, you got to, you know, get it all out there because you're going to have to send out so many queries, 30, 40, 50. And, you know, that's just the name of the game. And besides that, I mean, what everybody says you need to do, not just for her, but for example, my daughter, who's currently sort of switching careers, you have to let every last person you know, both professionally and non-professionally, that you're looking for a job. Right, right, And right. tell them the sort of things you're interested in, because it's amazing. Don't be modest in those situations. Don't be modest, yeah. but also everything that could be remotely relevant. Like right. my daughter speaks Spanish, you know, or she's a good people person. I guess that would actually be the first thing you'd say, but it's just like my son is an elementary school teacher when he graduated from school you can't get a job till you've had a job sort of like you can't get a waitress job till you've been a waitress and it was the 11th hour he needed to get a job and he bumped into an old elementary school friend and told him his dilemma and this kid said you know there's this wonderful program we live in new york city my son still does my daughter does too called chess in schools and my son had played chess and it was sort of what saved him when he had learning issues as a long kid he applied to the program and three years later he's still working for them so it's amazing how random it is yeah so that would be peace you know number one go on every date go on every interview and by the way for dates it's true too (laughs) you know until you feel pretty good about that but don't commit you know just see what's out there but especially when you're young but then the second thing would be more addressed to women but anybody who's insecure when i start and that's a lot of us when i started cooking school which was 1975 we were really in the minority i went to the culinary institute and you know all those guys who Mm -hmm. were mostly 18 and already worked in restaurants they were blue collar you know the face of cooking school keeps changing sure sure but back then it was very much not celebrity more you know working class and we're going to go work in restaurants which is what i want trade school trade school was for me too yeah that's what i'd gone to college but now i wanted to go be a chef in a restaurant right 
And they, of course, told us all those classic things. You know, you can't, women don't belong in the kitchen. They can't lift the pots. They can't take the pressure. They can't stand the heat. They're mm. just not hardwired to mm -hmm. do it. And that, for me, was catnip. Mm -hmm. But I know, because I was like, I, at least I was old. I was 23. They were 18. I'd gone to college. Right. You know, I'd matured a bit. You knew, you, you knew more things. I did. Yeah. And I, I was a good student. They right. weren't. And that was part of being at school. They didn't get that. They didn't understand they were going to have oh, to yeah. spend it's a little not time. Just, it, there's tests, too. It's oh. not just, you know, working with your hands and practical. and. No, there's knowledge. You, know. you have to know things. It's I mean, not all how you did it at your last job. No, no. It's You need to know all sorts of right. formulas and all sorts of things. So, at any rate, I did okay. But, I, I, you know, in recent years, I meet a lot of young women mm -hmm. who are going to cooking school. And they're getting ready to graduate and they want to go get a job. And I was like, what are you looking for? Oh, well, I wouldn't even consider a restaurant. I'd be like, why not? Oh, it's too hard. You know? And I'd be like, well, it's hands down the best education you can get to do any other job in the industry. It will jumpstart you anywhere else because you learn so much. Mm -hmm. My advice always is go work in a restaurant. Even oh, yeah. if you don't Everybody do it, should have to. Even if you don't do it forever, it's right. such great training. Yeah. Oh yeah. It so solidifies your knowledge. But they don't even they won't even consider it. They just don't think they Why can. Why is that? I think maybe because they're also told that women just don't do that. I think that I don't know. I really don't know, honestly. Do you think it's do you, and do you think it's regional? Do you think it's different here in New York versus in California versus in, you know, other parts of the world? Well, I mean, one, it is sure. Well, so. one thing I know yeah. is true that if you're not in a place where they have chefs who are friendly to hiring women. Mm -hmm. You're sort of intimidated from even trying. Mm -hmm. Now that has changed across the country. When I first moved to New York City, I had an introduction from Julia Child mm -hmm. to every great restaurant in the city. Mm. And none of them would have me because wow. I was a woman. Wow. Because they were all men. They were European men. That has changed. That yeah. is not the landscape now. No. So even Thankfully. New York City. But I, I would recommend that anybody who did want to go work in a restaurant, particularly well, anybody, do your homework first and find out what's a hospitable place to work at. You know, you don't want a screamer of any kind right, no. anymore, and you don't have to. But California has <laughs> always been a much better place. You know, 10 or 15 years ago, when I did meet women who, who wanted to work in restaurants, I'd say head west, young lady, mm -hmm. because the restaurants there are so, you know, you have your Joyce Goldstein's mm -hmm. and your Mary Susan Sue's. Mm -hmm. and, and, but you also have a lot of male chefs who are, I'm sure you are, very nice to women. I mean, not nice, just equal. Yeah, you know, my favorite environment is when you have a little bit of everybody. Yes. You know? I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. I've worked with all women, and that was a disaster. We all got on the same <laughs> schedule, and we were all either yelling at each other or crying. Although some a woman recently shouted me out on that one, and she said, maybe the problem was that you were a new chef. This was my <laughs> first job as the chef. And I ran it sort of very egalitarian. I wanted to know what everybody thought. Uh -huh, uh -huh. She said, maybe that was part of the... I know that was part of the problem, because I switched gears became much more of a Gestapo, gave everybody a job description uh -huh. and where they fit in the hierarchy. Huh. I gave them exact recipes. I took pictures of the recipes. I said, this is what I expect. And how, and how was that? Everybody got along so much better. Oh, and I hired a bunch of men. Well, you know, people, whether they, whether they tell you the opposite and they will, people like structure. They do. They really do. They want to know what's expected yeah. of them. Oh, yeah. I have to say one of the hardest parts about being semi-retired or semi-employed which I find myself in right now, is the lack of structure. Yeah. I have to right. make it. Right. You know, even though here's what I've wanted for years, right. I'm like, oh dear, what do I do now? Right. But I, I did want to say the one elephant in the room when it comes to women is children. Mm. That's why I left the restaurant industry, mm -hmm. and I always thought I'd go back. So I was getting, you know, up in my 30s, and I was like, I forgot to have kids. Mm -hmm. you know, and how, can I, how can I do this if I'm working 80 hours mm -hmm. a week? You can't. And I realized after I had them, they don't just need you when they're newborns, they need you when they're toddlers mm -hmm. and elementary and high school and, you know, apparently young adults, I've dis discovered, but, which is my delight, but I never went back because of that. And it's very hard. You need a partner mm -hmm. who's willing to really be there for the kids because the kids need somebody there. 
you know, to pick sure. them up and help with the homework. And, I mean, TV can only do so much. Yes. You know. Yeah. And it shouldn't be the <laughs> parent. So no. that is still a problem that's not been solved. Mm. And I don't know if it can be. So mm. I'd see that as a deterrent. But in the meantime, while you're young and you have no commitments, please go work in a restaurant. Oh, I want people who are not food people or culinary people to jump on that same bandwagon of making sure that they work in restaurants too. Because uh, I know every food person that I know thinks that. But how do we, how do we spread the gospel for everyone else, you know? Uh, you know, and, and we say this a lot. We end up responsible for teaching people how to be in their first jobs, how to show up on time, how to not be an asshole, yes. you know, how to, uh, you know, solve problems. solve problems, how to not freak out, how to, you know, do what you're told, but also how to give your opinion when, it, you know, when it's, when is the right time to give your opinion, which is hugely important to learn, right? So you learn all those things in your first jobs and, you know, not only the restaurant industry, but, you know, retail too, you know, a lot of people, you know, first jobs are in shopping malls and retail environments. Well, less and less. Yes. Maybe now their first jobs are, are picking for Amazon. I know. You know, but you learn those skills. Either you come, somebody's taught them to you, you know, at home, whoever's raising you or someone's teaching them to you as you're working. Right. You know, so I agree. 100%. those are important things. And one of the things that you talked about was the dance. And, and, I, and I love that you say that because I think that's one of those terms and one of those occurrences that you don't really know unless you're doing it. And so describe what the dance is to people who don't, who may not know what that is. Well, you could also call it a concert, you know. It's like everybody's playing in a different instrument. And some nights the orchestra sounds fantastic, and some nights right. it sounds awful. Right, right. And nobody's on time. It's the night, and they're, they're, you know, you just, it's a real high. Everything's going well. You're all on time. The dishes look good. The flow is good. You're not fighting with the waiters. It's magic. Yeah. And you're having fun. Yeah. You know, right. because you're a team. It's so exciting. It's true. There's, there's so many elements, you know, and I was thinking about this the other day, how, you know, each restaurant is like, it's like a, a microcosm, you know, not only are you, you're making things, you're making the food and the drinks, but, but you're also serving it and all of the elements of service that go along with it. But it's, it really has to go together harmoniously, Yeah. you know, or, or people really feel it. Yeah. You know, there's so many details that once you get to like a tipping point, you know, it's like quote unquote a bad night. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, one could equate it as I often have to fighting a war and some night you win some battles and you lose right, some battles right. and some nights what you lose say? the war. Well, I was like, what is that? Lost the battle, but win the war or, yeah. or lose the battle, but yes. lose the war. What is, yeah. But it really was such a high when things went well. Mm, mm. So what do you think two issues that food professionals need to take head on are? Or a couple of, it doesn't have to be. Oh my goodness. Well, be. there's plenty. It's hard because at the end of the day, you got to make money. Right. So that's number one. Right. But I mean, everybody's trying to do that anyway. That right. seems to be what you're told to do. But if you have the luxury of dealing with, and you can usually incorporate it into a restaurant anyway, one is food waste, huge, and figuring out right. how not to. Right. Or at least if you're going to have excess, what to do with it that's smart whether it be donating it somewhere or starting compost or starting your own garden or whatever. I mean, I was lucky enough when I was in my late 20s to go work in France for three months. I did a petit stage in Chartres, France at a restaurant that is no longer. Every restaurant I worked at is no longer, yeah. except for the harvest in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Well, my it's a, it's, I mean, it's, it's a hard thing to maintain at some I know. point. I you know. know, it's like a car. A car doesn't run forever. No. You know, at some point it breaks down. I know. Yeah. All right, so I won't feel too yeah. bad about it. Yeah. But anyway, the restaurant I worked at in France, which was fraught, because again, I was the only woman and the head chef owner oh. was a dirty old man chased me around oh. the kitchen. But I learned how to use everything. Yeah. How to use absolutely everything. Yeah. Those Europeans were so thrifty and so smart. And it, yet it was a two-star restaurant. So he still maintained his quality while mm -hmm. using everything. That's great. So I came back and my food cost was so much better when I came back. 
I mean, it's also the bottom line, back to the bottom line, you're making money. So if you waste less, that's a good thing. What was something that you had been throwing away that you learned not to? Oh God, that's a really good point. I can't remember specifically, but we would incorporate leftovers into a quiche. You know, mm-hmm, back then, mm-hmm. you know, we're talking about the creaky late seventies. We were still serving quiche. Mm-hmm, you know, you mm-hmm. can do that or you could make a burrito and throw right. in some of the leftover, right. you know, whatever. Or make a soup. Right. Soups are a fantastic way to use. So but food waste is a huge issue in, yeah. in the country. Yeah. And, and so that's one. And the other one of course is is trying to be responsible about sustainability. Right, right. Again, you know, it's hard to afford organic ingredients, but at least try to work with local, because mm-hmm. local's better than non-local and so but i think most chefs are trying to do this anyway of course i mean we should bring up sexual harassment mm-hmm. that that's very important that everybody be treated with respect yeah now i will say because i've been talking to a lot of my female chef friends mm-hmm. obviously i'm no longer working in a restaurant but when i did for seven years I was in the middle of it too, mm-hmm. you know, making sexy jokes, you know, a zucchini's not a zucchini, right, you right. know, maybe a little squeeze in the walk-in with some right. guy, but I don't ever remember. I mean, you have to, it's sort of fun. I mean, it's like fighting a war, right? You have to have some sort of outlet for humor. Uh, and some yeah. of it is sex, particularly right. if you're a mixed group, as yeah. long as it doesn't get ugly. And in my experience, all the restaurants I worked at, it never got ugly. I was always part of the game. So I think that's fine. But sometimes it does get ugly. And I think that some people are really bad at not knowing how someone is repulsed by you. Yeah. You know? Well, so, some people are bad. We, do we mean men? Yeah. I mean, I know it's not just men and women, but because it can go anywhere, you no. know? It can, I mean, especially in this industry, yeah, no, it was, it was either men not heeding the reading, signs. Yeah. You know, or, I think, or just blatantly not caring. No, I think that's part you know? of the, our culture. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even though I consider myself a feminist, I think I've not, and I've tried hard to help women to feel more powerful, but I think I've bought into that too. You know, sort of kowtowing to men and men are more important and not correcting them because we were brought up that way. But women did all the cooking. Oh, you I know, know but saying? you're in, just in being histi- reasonable. In, in history. Of course. You know? Of course. So, so, so why do men take over this craft I don't that know. inherently really just has been women? I don't know. It know? makes no sense to me. I mean, yeah. you know, it's the rare male chef, well, particularly European, who will give credit to his mom because that is where most of them learned. Right. Except somebody say like Jacques Pepin. Right. You know, who is enormously respectful because his mother was a chef. Right. I mean, she wasn't just mom at home cooking, but he learned so much from her. I don't understand it, but I will say the one thing besides men being better about reading, you know, signs mm-hmm. is I think that there is a glass ceiling or whatever you want to call it in restaurants, too. And that's got to stop. And that's even my friend Amanda Cohen talks about this. That's a big, much bigger issue even, we believe, maybe it's because we haven't had a bad time in restaurants, she and I, mm-hmm. but the biggest problem is women being kept out of the promotions, kept out of the publicity, kept out of the funding for new restaurants, mm. kept out of the food festivals, being tokens, hmm. certainly also people of color, but because I'm a woman, I can talk about that. Sure. And I, I think it's it's a really, really big issue. It's so much better than it used to be, but it's still not best. Mm, mm. So changing focus just a little bit, you, I think, are known to so many people for answering questions. So at what point did you realize that was your thing? Well, I was given a show called Cooking Live, mm-hmm. the premise of which was I was going to answer questions. And I did that for six years. So did you feel good about that from the beginning or did you have to settle into it because you know when you're put there on the spot being asked questions live right you have to know what you're talking about at least you have to know most of it you know and i remember that you would you would say what you didn't know which is always good because 
especially, you know, I mean, maybe it was a little bit different at that time, but now people can Google that in right. a moment I've been and they can, they can call you out as they're asking you the question. Yeah. Right? I've been so. replaced by Google. <laughs> yeah. But that confidence, it doesn't come overnight. No. Well, let me tell you what happened. So I did 1200 of those shows Oh my goodness! and it was for the first nine months, it was Monday through Friday, an hour long show that ran from seven to eight on the East coast and four to five on mm-hmm. the West coast. West coast got food network later than East Coast. East mm-hmm. Coast got it right when I started. I had already had it in 96. I think it took a while for the West Coast to get it. And my problem was not answering the questions, although that was scary as hell. Mm-hmm. My problem was doing TV, period. Mm. So I'm the only person at the Food Network who probably learned on the job just because mm. I was there every night. But what I quickly discovered was that I love teaching. Mm-hmm. And when I grew up in New York City, and then when I was in college, I went to the University of Michigan, I always tutored in the public school system. Second and third graders who were behind in math and mm. English. And in order to become good at that, I read every book about how children learn, why children fail. Mm. And it really has to do with empowerment, making the child feel successful, you know, baby steps, also addressing what interests them instead of imposing some outer curriculum on a kid. Sure. You know, so if they are having a hard time reading and let's say they're really into cars, instead of giving them textbook with, you know, with the usual stuff, get them magazines about cars. Right, right. So how that all became so useful to me is I realized that grown-ups are really no different than kids in terms of wanting to learn and wanting to be successful and wanting to move forward. They need encouragement. They need you to be interested. They need you to address what their issues are. So that was really fun for me, but I will say I had a hidden weapon. I went to this private all-girls school in New York City called Uh the Brearley School. Uh I went from eighth grade to 12th grade. Before that, I went to Friends Seminary. And I did not like it because it was so rigidly academic that I had no time for life. Right. However, it taught me how to study. I was fantastic at studying, which is why I think part of the reason I did so well at the CIA, because I could really, I was really good at taking yeah. that information and retaining it. And as retaining well. it. Yeah. So that stood me in good stead. So when I did the Food Network show, I still worked full time at Gourmet Magazine during the oh, day. Wow. Wow. So and, and by still, the, and learn, learning all the time there. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. I, I, every issue had to be different. Right. Well, yeah. I at that point I was chef of the executive dining room, so oh, I wow. wasn't working on the editorial side. But, but don't you think it all kind of flows together? You know, like things, because you were probably very aware of what was going on in the magazine. Oh, God, yes. No, I had to make the magazine come alive. Yeah. So we would have clients in and I'd have to cook from the magazine. So I was constantly making new recipes, which was even better than being in the test kitchen, which you just focused on the articles you were working on. We had to make everything. So I would study during the day, look at what the recipes were we were making that night. We made probably about three recipes, maybe four sometimes. What what year was this? So we started in 96 and went to 2002. So what was, so what was... What were the hot recipes that you remember? Is this like seared ahi tuna time? Because there were no. I'll tell you hot ingredients. Yes, yeah. And we felt like we were introducing them. The good news was because we did. So I did twelve hundred shows. That was that's a lot of recipes. If we did three to four a night, I made a deal with Gourmet. Uh I will start every show by saying I'm the executive chef of Gourmet magazine, Uh and so they let me use Gourmet recipes. But this was really really fun times because. People on the East Coast, Midwest, Southern part of the country didn't know about chipotles and right, adobo right, or right. panko breadcrumbs right. or fish spatulas right, right. or, you know, any number of ingredients. So you'd bring it up and it'd be like, wow. You know, so I would that's just great. make the recipes from gourmet that had these things in it. Oh, that's great. And people would fall off their chairs. They were so excited. But how would how would they get these things in the middle of the country? Well, mainly it was mail order. Yeah. Back then, I think I could give sources. Um, uh-huh. I mean, that's not true anymore. But back right. then, I think I would say you can go to Kalustian's yeah. website. Penzies or uh, yes. whatever you said yes. at the time. Right. Yeah. Right. I, so that worked out really well. But what I want to tell you before is, so to do that show, if I was even going to pick up a, a black pepper mill, uh-huh. I needed to know the difference between white, black, green, and pink. And so, because somebody could ask me. Right. Because right. I did not know the questions. We screened them to make sure they weren't dirty, and we did get six dirty phone calls in six <laughs> years. But uh, other than that, 
if it was on topic, it had to be on topic. Could you see the face of the screener? No. So so there was no hit. There was no tell. There was no like facial tell like nope. if a doozy was coming down down nope. the pike. Nope. And they, yeah. the people who were answering the phone didn't even know if it was a doozy or not. Okay. They were regular people. We all got trained doing the show, including right. like the camera guys. Sure. You know, you can't help but learn. Yeah. But no, the people who were answering the phones, no, they would give me no heads up. I mean, on Wednesdays we started doing Skype because uh-huh. we did a cook-along. Uh-huh. So every other night there'd be pre-prepped ingredients. Uh-huh. You know, the onions would be chopped usually. Right. But on Wednesday nights, we all started with raw ingredients, me and the audience. Oh, wow. And then we would make the recipe in real time. And somebody in particular would be chosen to talk to me while they were cooking. I noticed that oftentimes they would have like every family member known to man helping them. Mm-hmm. So it'd be me alone and them and 12 people. I'd be like, Henry, I don't think this is fair. Yeah. You know, yeah. so Henry would get the finish line. I would not. But we'd learn a lot along the way. It was really fun. I definitely remember those early days of Food Network and you answering questions. Yeah. You know, it, it it's like vividly burns in my brain. And really, I don't remember you being stumped. Oh, I was. I mean, the very first week, okay, here's a test for you, you California boy. (laughs) The very first week, I got a call. What's the difference between golden and black raisins? Golden and black raisins. They're different varietals, aren't they? That's what I said. You're wrong. Uh... They're not. I said that, and then I went home and I did my homework. They're mostly Thompson seedless, Uh which is a green grape, Uh and it's the way they're dried. So the golden ones are, this is very simplified, but they're shot up with sulfur and they're not dried all that Uh, long, uh, which is why they're plumper. uh The black ones are air-dried, sun-dried, and dried much longer, which is why they're jammier and denser. But it's the same grape. So after I did that, uh I never made it up again. I'm not saying I didn't say some raw things, wrong things. I know I did. I perpetrated the myth, among other people, that if something was too salty, add pasta, potatoes, or rice, and we'll suck it out. No way, Jose. The only way to get rid of the extra salt is to add more water. I still used to think that putting potatoes would take the salt away. No, No. not at all. Not at all. Nope. Were you ever like an Alton Brown fan of science? And because, you know, his show was, was very Oh, yeah. His show was all about science. science. Yeah, which was, I think, terrific. Yeah. I won the biology prize in high yeah. school, but and we were taught science at the CIA, particularly right. in baking. Right. So I, now I love it, but back then I just tried to learn what I needed to learn mm. in order to help the people who called in. Yeah. Do you remember any like do any of the calls like stand out as like burned in your brain you'll never forget? I remember one time some someone calling me from the Midwest and taking me through the whole process of making sauerkraut which involved a few outhouses because it's so... Stinky. Yeah. Yeah. So that was really fun. I remember another time early on when somebody took me through how to cut up a mango on air. Ah. You know, where you cut it on either side of the pit and then score it and then score it and then just eat it out of that. And they were teaching you at that time. Yeah. So that that would happen too. I do remember some sad moments. Mm. Um, Somebody who actually I became friends with meaning I saw him on some events I did. Mm -hmm. He lived in Hawaii, and his daughter, who was my age, had died. Mm. And I reminded him of her. Mm. And he was very sweet, and he would send me Hawaiian red salt. So that was a nice thing. Another nice thing was this guy named Pinky, because he had red hair, made pepper mills for me. Oh, wow. He was from Alabama, and Montrose, Alabama. And uh, early on, I was about a year in, I went to some event for the Food Network. I don't even remember. I think it was the West Coast. And for some reason, he was there. He was older than I was. He was probably in his 60s when I first met him. And he had a cowboy hat and he was elegant and tall. And I was sitting at some booth signing books. And he came over and brought me this beautiful handmade pepper mill. Mm. And he said he was an avid viewer and he just loved it and he wanted me to have it. So I put it on the set. And then he sent me another one and I put it on oh, the wow. set. And after a couple of years, what had happened was he'd retired and he'd been making wood toys for his grandchildren. And he just started making pepper mills and he learned how to do them and what kind of pepper and how to do the mechanism. And it sort of kept him busy. Hmm. So we did a best of a couple of years in, among other things, we talked about Pinky's pepper mills. Hmm. So we hooked 
people up with him and they would buy it. Oh, wow. He That's never great. really made any money because... I, I can the, only imagine how long it yeah. takes to hand make a peppermill. But there was a line, like two years long, oh, wow. to get a Pinky's Peppermill. And then because of that, I ended up on the Oprah show. Oh, wow. Because oh. Oprah wanted Pinky to give, you know, when you oh. give away a peppermill. Oh. And he wouldn't do it because yeah. he said, there's a line. I, yeah. I'm not... I'm That's not, great. So by then I had six peppermills. Probably the only one who's ever said no to Oprah. Oprah, right. Right. So by then I had about six or seven peppermills. And Oprah's folks reached out to me and said, is there anything you can do to get him to, to make one. I said, no, I won't do that, but I'll give you one of mine as long as I can give it to the person on the show. Because ah. I'd been dying to get yeah, on Oprah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that happened. How was that? Very disappointing. Really? Why? Yeah. I mean, not to say I'm not a fan of Oprah, but no, I wasn't but, that... But you build it up in your head. I and, wasn't that yeah, day. So yeah. I got there as a whole bunch of us. Oh, yeah. and they also made me... And this, was this the favorite thing show? I don't think not everybody got one. Just yeah. one person got right. one. Right. So it's some lucky winner. But but I mean, was it that day? That day where they give everything away? I guess. Yeah. I I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if it was that, but it was part of the show. Sure. It was because some woman had said that's the only thing she ever wanted. I don't know. Oh, but anyway, they also made like me... Like a deathbed wish. Yes. Yeah. Pinky's peppermill. Yeah, yeah, or something. Right. Anyway, the night before, they made me tape on the show. They wanted me to skip a show. I said, I can't do that. I've got yeah. a show. I'll come in in the morning. The show yeah. wasn't till their show wasn't till 11. They said, well, we, we need you to also tape uh, in case you don't make it. So I taped a handoff of the peppermill on my show and then uh-huh. got up really early and flew there. Uh-huh. And had to wait in the green room with everybody else. And then they had the segment right before me was a girl, a little girl who was dying of cancer. Oh. This is you're probably the person who I gave it to wasn't dying of anything, but right. was dying of cancer. And her last wish was to have the cast of some show come and see her. And they taped that and showed that. And she was there. Oh. And oh my Everyone's god, crying. oh yeah. my god. Right. And then I go on. Right. Right. I, was like, I was like, I was like, oh. <laughs> and, so, and so I go on and with I, your peppermill with my peppermill and I'm like oh this is so bad and then I, I give it to the person who wants it and then I thought at that point Oprah would we'd have a little chit chat yeah we go to break and that's the end of it oh she's no, gone no thank you and no wow that was so wonderful that you gave us your peppermill or that you taped it, it last night and came this morning and that was it no it's so rude. Oh, it's is... so basic. As a, I mean, I yeah. was never like Oprah, but yeah. as a host, right. you you have to be yeah, grateful and polite to right. your guests. You're welcoming them yeah. to your to your place. I mean, she wasn't rude. She just wasn't friendly. Yeah. Uh-huh. And uh... I jumped through hoops to get there. Mm. Yeah. Well, no peppermill for Oprah. No. Yeah. Never. Mm-mm. So, and then you did Good Morning America for, for a while. That's really how I ended up on the Food Network. Mm. So I worked with Julia behind the scenes on her public television show in Boston. And then she started doing TV at GMA. And that's how I ended up doing behind the scenes for Julia at GMA. And mm. I did that for 10 years. I did all the prep for all the chefs at and GMA. And that was live. Right. Yeah. But I wasn't on camera at that point mm. for the 10 years. So I worked with Wolfgang you were and ma- Martin. You were, you were making people f- look good. Right. Yeah. I was learning about how to do yeah. food you, TV. You were, you were actually the magic of television. Well, behind the scenes. Yeah, no. But when we used to... I still teach cooking classes. And when you pull... You know, when you pull a, a bowl of chopped onions from under the counter, you say the magic of television has right. already prepared the, you know. Exactly. That was you. Yeah, you were the magic me. of television. And that included, because it was the early days of food TV, helping people to relax. Uh-huh. If it even included, you know, pouring them a little shot of bourbon <laughs> at six o'clock in the morning before they went on air <laughs> and giving them little tips about how to relax. I did that for 10 years and that was really useful. Any like live kind of like mishap, oh, point God, of yes. no return, have to try to cover up something, something, something. Well, you know, the trouble is once the camera starts rolling, I can't rush out and fix it. Right. But things did go wrong. We had one prominent uh, baking cookbook author, uh-huh. really prominent, who went on to decorate, to show Charlie how to decorate a cake, uh-huh. and she completely froze. Oh, no. She couldn't do any of it. So Charlie, being very funny, and I don't know if you ever watched Charlie Gibson, probably not. He was... Did he did he dec- did he decorate the cake? He did. And he put he put a happy face on top <laughs> and little zigzags. He That's, just went wild right, with it, right. and it was actually really yeah. great TV. But I felt so bad for her because yeah. she just couldn't do oh, it. Poor thing. But the, what would more often happen is we didn't have so many mishaps on air. But yeah. what would happen is we would go to break, you know, to the advertisement right before the segment, and somebody would say, "We only have three minutes, not five. And it was my job to figure out how to shrink it. 
So that was... You had to cut it down. But I love live TV, I have yeah. to say. So then when I started, so the, that's why the Food Network approached me at all, is because they knew I knew how to do food uh-huh. TV from behind the scenes. Uh-huh. So and, first And live. And live, yeah. yeah. So first they want, well, but they weren't, it was quite a while, I mean, they approached me in 93, it wasn't until 96 I ended up on the, on the show. Yeah, but I think still though, if you're, I, I, I would say if you're a producer type, and you're watching somebody do it live, you would think, of course they could do it not live. Because right. that's the harder one. But, but I one, wasn't right? on camera yet. I wasn't. I was just behind the scenes. Mm, okay. So so they wanted me to run the kitchen, and mm. then they wanted me to maybe do a desk job, and I didn't want to do any of that. But then mm-hmm. I tried out for how to boil water, and I was awful. Yeah. So I thought it's over. But they were so desperate in the early days, uh, they asked me back to fill in for somebody who had a show, Michelle Irvater. And I did, and I guess they liked me. Oh, and I also did Chef Toujours, and I got media training for that Hmm. and I was marginally better than I had been but I'm telling you in the early days of the Food Network they had no money they had no point of reference they were all news guys not food guys so those things were all great yeah it was fine just fine and so I grew on the job but that's how I ended up on the Food Network I don't remember what you asked me that is exactly oh, what GMA. I GMA. Yeah. So when I ended up on the Food Network, they, yeah. then I also became the food editor of GMA. So I mm. appear on there six to eight times a year. Mm. And that was really fun, too. I bet that was fun. It was. Yeah. You're such a New York girl. I was born in New York Hospital. Yeah. There could not be anything more New York than that. Yes. Now's the time when, if you're willing, we play a little game, if that's okay. Okay. So it's not a hard game. It's mm-hmm. just called Three Things. I just okay. ask you three things. Okay. And, and they can be real or made up. Okay. Oh, yeah. fun. Yeah. Okay. It can be completely, you know, doesn't have to be anything based in reality. Three things that you can use as a makeshift bandage when you go to the kitchen first aid kit and it's empty. Whoa, that's a good one. Well, there's always paper towels, uh-huh. I guess, with plastic wrap on top of it. I've seen it. Um, Actually, in reality, I've seen that. I mean, what I understand is pressure and above your heart is more important than anything else. So it's it's not even what's gushing. It's yeah. that you, and it's usually your hand. So I guess I'm thinking your hand. My sure. husband sliced open his finger. Uh-huh. And I had to stand there and make him hold up. We had to go to the hospital and get right, stitches. Right. You know, do do all those things. Hey, an old clean sock. Uh huh. You know, something that absorbs a lot. Yeah. yeah but but those, it's those are all perfectly pressure good as much yeah. as anything else. Yeah. I mean, I'm assuming you were talking about cuts. Yeah. 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 I, I'm talking about anything that that yeah. you know that that you're thinking about. That question came to mind because there's like a like a, a band-aid black hole in my first aid kit yeah. no matter how many band-aids i stock right in there right they're gone whenever you open it yeah. so i have to keep like a small back stock in my office otherwise there wouldn't be any band-aids that's so you know funny. and it's like it's like you know I, it, it's always just blows my mind like where do the band-aids go i buy more band-aids and you know knock on wood i don't see people cutting themselves that much you know i mean yeah it's just it's one of those things so so i was like you know what else you know what one day i'm not gonna like right now i'm not there right now you know so if if they open that thing there's no band-aids in there they're gonna they're gonna have to use a paper towels or a clean sock yeah you know maybe some cheesecloth yeah oh cheesecloth that's a good one yeah although that boy that would stick yeah that would (laughs) nasty (laughs) yeah wouldn't it it wouldn't be fun wouldn't be pleasant no um Okay, so three times that you panicked when you have panicked. I know we've talked about not panicking, but sometimes you panic. Sometimes we all panic. In the kitchen? Anytime. Oh, really? Anytime, yeah. This can be three times you've panicked in general. Well, you know, it's so funny. It all has to do with my 94-year-old dad. Mm. I went on a trip to the Grand Canyon with him. He was 90 at the time with two other 90-year-olds. And I was the young person in the car. But... I wasn't allowed to drive. This already sounds like the the makings of a movie. Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, my mom had died a year and a half before then. Mm. And she was so important to me. So I was Mm. already devastated by that. But now I wanted to keep this precious thing, my dad, in Mm -hmm. good shape. So I was nervous wrecked basically the whole trip. So it starts with going to the airport and twice in New York City to get on the plane, to go to San Diego, to meet our friends, to go travel around the Grand Canyon. By the way, it was a fantastic trip. I'd the never... Grand Canyon is actually pretty cool. Oh, my God. Yeah. We did all those. We went to Zion. Uh-huh. We went to all those Bryce. places. Uh-huh. Yes, Bryce. Uh-huh. All of those places. Yeah. So getting at the airport with my dad, you know, very simple. We're just checking in. 
but I'm like, so I feel this awesome responsibility of taking, you know, like heavy responsibility of taking good care of my dad. He's fine, <laughs> right. by the way. I mean, he has yeah. hearing aids and he moves slowly, but he's getting right. a real ass marble. He's really sharp. He was at 90. He is at 94. That's great. I left my pocketbook at the counter. Yeah. So we go sit down. I'm like, where is my pocketbook? Yeah. And then I got it. Whoosh, yeah. Okay, yeah. fine. Yeah. I leave him to go get a magazine and whatever, go to the bathroom. I leave my pocketbook in the bathroom. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's no way we can even travel if That's I don't have fine. So, but, uh, so then the right. third one, it's always three, or maybe there's four. So three, we get to San Diego, we go stay with his friends, and he doesn't even know about this one. I go for a walk. I walk. I'm a, right. That's my idea of yeah. exercise. I take right. really long walks. So I walk around in the neighborhood. I get lost. Okay. Oh, no. um, and I did not really know how to use my cell phone back then uh -huh. to get myself back. So I got panicky. The other two times I was panicky too. No pocketbook, no right, travel. Right, now right, I'm like, right, where I've lost. I? Right. I'm in this suburban neighborhood. Yeah. Who, Nobody's knows what dad, who knows what dad's doing? Yeah, it yeah. wasn't even suburban. It was more country. Yeah. And finally I asked somebody and figured it out. But then the fourth one was I was taking a walk with one of the other 90-year-olds. and um, A slow walk. Yeah, at another location we were at. Right. And his feet started to give out. He oh. had had... A foot surgery and they just weren't doing well oh, and no. he was pretty tall I think he was like six feet and so the you know second half of the way which you know was maybe 20 minutes I had to sort of support him the oh, whole wow. way and part of me was like will we make it yeah and the other part of it was I don't want him to feel humiliated yeah this will be yeah. our secret so yeah. well, sometimes you have to lean on people. Yeah. That's well, literally. Yeah, right. But I mean, so that right. that was a lot of panic packed into one trip. Uh. But it had to do with just I know the theme being just worried about my dad. Uh. And I didn't need to worry. He's the Energizer Bunny. He's now ninety four. He just he's the gift that keeps on giving. That's amazing. Okay. Last question of threes. Three bad idea cooking shows. And this can be completely... Oh, I hate to beat up, beat up on anybody. No, no, Well, no. I'm going to say something general. Yeah. No, and I mean, it doesn't have to be gonna, about anybody specific. Everybody's going to think I'm so wrong. Right. Tell me. Competition shows eh. are so wrong. You know wrong. what, though? A lot, of, a lot of people repeat that same sentiment. Tell me why you don't like them, from your opinion. Okay. I'm sure it's extremely personal. Mm. I don't want to I don't want to win, and I don't want to lose. So I've never done well, one. You're, you're, you're a collaborator. Yes and no. I, I also, you know, it's funny. I did one of those ridiculous tests recently where mm -hmm. they assessed who you were. They said I was a leader, not a team player. Yeah. So, I mean, well, I mean but, but certainly yeah. when I worked in restaurants, I was part of yeah. a team. However, so I just feel like food is about sharing and giving right. and nurturing and teaching and coming together. Why should it be made into this literal war? Right. Right. I hate it. I right. hate it. I hate it. But they're enormously popular. And I have to say, if I'm stuck, like on a flight or in a hotel room or in mm -hmm. a waiting room, and I have to watch part of one, I still learn something. It makes me hmm. enormously nervous because I'm so nervous for the people who are competing. Mm -hmm. I'd like to be it's a stressful. judge. Yes. Stressful to watch it. So stressful. Yeah. It's yeah. like watching your kid in a kindergarten right. play and they're going to forget their lines. Right. Oh, it's right. terrible. So I think those are awful. So can I just say that? Mm -hmm. Period. Because there's so right, many. There's so many. Every variety. There's so many. A, a chef friend of mine who was dying to be on one of these, you know, get discovered and have a TV show. And he's a serious chef. Uh -huh. So, you know, I, I'd love that to happen. He did one where they had rotating. The whole time you were doing it, the stage was rotating that you were on. Yeah. And then you had to switch and take over somebody's course at a different yeah. stage that yeah. they were cooking it. Yeah. I'm like, this is just has nothing to do with yeah. food. No, it's, it's uh, taking us so far away from it. Yeah. You know, all awful. You know, I think the only way to survive it is if you look at it as a game and not like you know, anything else. Have you competed? You know, I did one show. I know you have. I did one show. I know you have. And let me say this, and it's funny because I'm not, so they started it off by, you're with the other chefs and you, you're supposed to, you stand in a circle and you're supposed to like cut each other down in a, in a playful way. And it's, and it's kind of like the warm up of the thing. And it's kind of like, you call that a jacket. I don't know. You know, I don't know. It's like, that's not even how my brain works. So it's hard. So it's like, I feel, I feel weird saying those things. So it's like, Mo, your hair's really long. Oh, I'm sorry. It's like, you know, it's like, I'm like the worst. That's not today. who you are. No, no, I, it's, it, no. So, um, but it was, it was fun. I made it to the end. I didn't win, but I did make it to the final round. And the first two rounds, I was so nervous. 
But the third round, I actually ended up having fun. But it was one of those kind of, like ours was a, a circus theme one. And like the, the first round, like we were in a clown car, you know, doing stuff. And, you know, but I didn't really look at it like, like, I just, it was like, it seemed like a game to me. It didn't seem like, you know, there, there was much cooking. The guy who lost in the first round, he had, he had a sushi restaurant in San Francisco. And because there were two of us from San Francisco, a guy from New York, and then a girl from, I think, the South. And he's just like a master sushi chef. Like, really amazing, talented guy. He lost in round one because he didn't put together... He had to, like, mash up popcorn and make it into something else. I forget exactly. He was you out know. of his comfort zone. Yeah, yeah. And it was, it, it was kind of like the stuff that he had to make was so disgusting compared to what he actually makes as like a sushi artist you know it just it doesn't make any sense but i don't think you can you can look at it like you know a show of it's like a game it's like a game it's not like a true show of skill you know in my opinion my, although, my opinion. although one can say if you can take all these crazy ingredients and make something good you are talented yeah. you know i do remember you know you have your basket and you run to the ingredients and and you have a minute or whatever, 60 seconds or less or more, I don't remember about that, to grab what you need to grab. And you know, you're running through your list in your head of what you're gonna make. You're like eggs, flour, butter, sugar, because you're trying not to forget something, you forget something. Yeah. And then- There's and, that panic element. And there's the panic element. And, and you know, and for me, that's when I panic because I, I'm a list maker. I make lists all day long. I keep a paper and a pen in my pocket and, and I think it's, it not only helps me with kitchen stuff, but it helps me with, you know, just general running and business stuff, you know? So like, cause I'll be cooking on the line cause I cook on the line and then I'll think, oh, I need to pay the tax bill. And so I'll, I'll make a note, you know, pay tax bill. Right. So. Isn't that funny? You're not doing it on your phone. Well, it's easier for me to take out a, like, you know, a piece of an old menu yeah. and scribble on it with a Sharpie than it is to like open up my phone and yeah. type it in yeah. and stuff type like that. It, get so, the right so, but then I have to like decipher my notes at the end of the day or heaven forbid, I drop my list somewhere in the restaurant oh, no. and I have to run around and find it. That's a panic because I'm like, I had all these great things that I needed to do and now I can't find it. But anyway. wow. That's so, um, Sarah Moulton, thank you so much for doing well, this. You, this Matt. is amazing. You have so many great stories, and I have so much respect for what you do. I have such good memories of you answering questions. You were like the, the question lady, the question genius, the question chef. Those were around the times when, you know, when I was getting into culinary, and it's nice to have those people in your life who are, you know, good, positive role mo models, because at some point you end up in front of people who aren't. And I, I remember one of the first restaurants I was in, there was a screaming French chef throwing pots and pans. And, you know, and, and I don't remember much more than that from him. But I remember all the other, you know, good people. And, and so thank you for, for being wow. such a good positive influence on so many people. Well, thank you. So if you want to check her out on Instagram, it's at Sarah S. Moulton. Facebook is Sarah Moulton. And check out her website, sarahmoulton.com. Thank you so much. Thank you, Matt. Thank you for listening to Food, Wine, and the Culinary Mind. Find us on all things social at Culinary Mindcast and on the web, canelasf.com backslash podcast. Don't forget to rate us where you found us.